You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. That is the exact time and place and moment that my life changed when I heard the word lead. It can literally alter the entire life course trajectory of not just one child, but a population of children. And I knew that if I was going to, you know, figure out what was going on with this crisis, um, that I would need science in my pocket, that I would need to find out if that lead that was in the water was increasingly in the bodies of our children. That was Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha, the pediatrician who brought the Flint water crisis to the world's attention when she discovered that children in Flint, Michigan, were exposed to harmful lead-contaminated water from the city's water supply, she spoke out and she got results. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Dr. Hannah Atisha is a pediatrician teacher, and public health advocate. She's a professor of public health and pediatrics and human development at Michigan State University. And she is the founder and director of the Michigan State University and Hurley Children's Hospital Pediatric Public Health Initiative. Time Magazine named her one of its 100 most influential people, and USA Today made her one of its women of the century. Listen and learn why Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm here today with Dr. Mona Atisha, and it is a great pleasure to be with her. She's a pediatrician, scientist, author, activist, probably best known for her efforts to expose and get addressed the Flint, Michigan water crisis, which I'm sure by now we've all heard about. So I'd like to start, Mona, if I might, 
to talk about that Flint water crisis. It may never have come to light if you hadn't done the research and spoken out the way you did uh, back in 2015. What made you pursue that initial study? And what did you find? And were those results shocking to you? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And first off, it's, I'm so excited to be here with you. So thank you for having me on this podcast. What prompted me to do my research um, was just one word. It was the word lead. Um, I was at my house with a high school girlfriend of all things. So, you know, the moral of the story is kind of hang out with your girlfriends, keep them near and dear. And my high school girlfriend, um, she went on to pursue a career in, in environmental engineering. She became a drinking water expert. We were both really kind of shaped by um, environmental activism when we were both high school students together. And I went into environmental health and she went into environmental engineering. And she had just moved back to Michigan and she was at my house and our children were playing together. And she cornered me in my kitchen and she's like, hey, Mona, um, it sounds like Flint's not treating their water properly and they're not using a really important ingredient called corrosion control. And she like stared at me and I, I had no idea what she was talking <laughs> about. And she's like, Mona, without corrosion control, there's going to be lead in the water. And that is the exact time and place and moment that my life changed when I heard the word lead. As a scientist, as a pediatrician, I know what lead does. It's, it's a poison. It has no safe level. It can literally alter the entire life course trajectory of not just one child, but a population of children. And I knew that if I was going to you know, figure out what was going on with this crisis. You know, if I was going to protect my kids, which as a physician, I have taken an oath to do, um, that I would need science in my pocket, that I would need to find out if that lead that was in the water was increasingly in the bodies of our children. So um, quickly did the research and, and quickly as in like, did not sleep, did not eat. I lost 40 pounds. I lived oh my coffee. Gosh. Um, yeah, not a great way to lose weight. Um, like I, I was driven by kind of this quest to find out what was happening to our kids. And, and unsurprisingly, there was more lead in the water. So yes, there was more lead in the blood of our children. And when I realized that, um, my heart sank because it, this didn't have to happen. It was entirely preventable. Mm. And do you live in Flint or near Flint? I live a little south in Flint. So I'm, I'm looking at my hand right now because Michigan is the mitten state. So mm -hmm. I, li I live closer to Detroit. Um, my husband works in Detroit. He's also a pediatrician. Um, and I, I work a little north in Flint. So we live in the middle between Detroit and Flint. And was there much conversation or speculation at the point that you had uh, the talk with your high school friend about the water situation in Flint? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, this was about a year and a half into our water switch. And from our water switch happened in April of 2014. And, and right when the water switch happened, there was a lot of kind of buzz in the local media and concern from parents and patients that were coming in to see me um, in my clinic. They were worried about the water, you know, asking questions like, do you, do you really think I should mix my baby's formula with this water? And uh, are you sure we shouldn't drink more pop and soda? Should we really drink more, you know, water? And, you know, whatever I give my baby a bath, they, they seem to have a rash, like right to the water line. Ooh. So, yeah. So there was concerns, like not only in the media, but also for my patients. And throughout this year and a half time period, um, I was telling my patients that the water was safe because everybody 
everybody in charge was saying that the water was safe, you know, mm-hmm. and in my, in my head, you know, and I think so many of us before the Flint water crisis, we, we assumed that no matter where we lived in Flint or Detroit or DC or Chicago, you name it, that when we, that when we turn on our tap, our water is safe. And, and in my head, I, I picture these folks with like white lab coats and they have test tubes in their hands and they're checking our water and making sure that our water is safe. I mean, that's one of the basic tenets of what government and, and public health are, are all about. Uh, Absolutely. And, yeah. On top of that, it's, it's Michigan. Once again, I'm looking at my mitten hand. We're surrounded by the Great Lakes. We're surrounded by the largest source of freshwater in the world. 21% of the freshwater in the world is around Flint. Uh, so for all of these reasons, but mainly because all the folks in charge were saying it was safe, I, I was telling my patients that, of course, how could it not be safe? So interesting and so disconcerting. So you were working feverishly, sleepless nights, losing weight, but yeah. going at it uh, in a very driven way. And then you did something truly unusual for a pediatrician. You held a press conference to announce your findings. Why did you take that step? And what was that like? Because, you know, not that you're ordinary. I think physicians, pediatricians are very special people, but it is unusual to call a press conference. Yeah, that's definitely not what doctors and academics are supposed to do when we when we do research and and, and have findings from our research. We're supposed to go through this time tested peer review process where things get published in journals or get presented at conferences. Um, and that peer review process can take a long time. It can take months or maybe years. Um, so my kids in Flint didn't have another day. So. I literally walked out of my clinic with my white coat on and I stood up at a press conference sharing these findings. And this was still part of what it means, at least for me, what it means to be a doctor. You know, I'm a clinician, I see patients, I'm a researcher, I'm an educator, I teach, um, but I'm also an advocate. That's one of the reasons I went into medicine and, and specifically pediatrics is to elevate the voices of my patients and, and to be their voice um, when nobody's listening to them. So this is all what it means for me to be a doctor. And I think really kind of implicit in the story is that doctor or not, like we have all taken an oath to stand up for what's right, um, especially when we see injustices around us. Like, you know, I was doing this not only because it was my professional obligation as someone who has taken an oath to protect children, um, but also because it's my moral, ethical, civic responsibility to do this. But you are right. This is not how doctors and academics and pediatricians usually share research. But there was no other way. Every minute that went by, our kids, you know, this water was filling sippy cups. This water was filling baby bottles. Uh, uh. And then what was the reaction to what you had to say? And what did you say? (laughs) So, you know, I said, uh, I shared the science, I shared the numbers, I shared the research. I also shared stories of my patients. I held in my hand a baby bottle because I knew that optics were important. I knew that I couldn't just share numbers. I knew that I also had to share the personal. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt great. I felt awesome after this press conference. I'm like, yay, I did my job. I'm sharing, you know, I'm protecting kids. This is why I went into medicine. Like, you know, kids will be protected. And because how could anybody like refute science? Like, I'm just sharing science and facts. Like, how could anybody attack science? And I'm, I'm totally being sarcastic here. Um, so, of course. you know, within within a half hour, I was 
attacked by every, you know, every arm of the government and different layers of government. Uh, the state said I was an unfortunate researcher, that I was splicing and dicing numbers. Um, and one of my favorites, they said I was causing near hysteria, which has been thrown against so many amazing women over time. That phrase of being hysterical, well, that word. Always hysterical. Always Especially hysterical. when they don't like what, what women exactly. have to say. Exactly. And that was hard and that was scary. Like I began to second guess myself for a minute. Um, I mean, because who am I? I am this like barely five foot tall, brown, first generation immigrant <laughs> woman um, going against these super powerful forces who are all telling me I'm wrong. Um, I was physically scared. You know, I, I'm like, oh, my gosh, maybe I should just kind of kept my eyes closed and gone about my busy business as a mom, wife, pediatrician, academic. Fortunately, kind of those moments of doubt just lasted a really tiny period because I quickly realized like, Hey, this has nothing to do with me. Like they can go after me all they want, but this has everything, everything to do with my children. And, and my Flint kids are, are no different than my biological children. Like when I'm not like physically home with my kids, you know, my kids are like, Oh, mom's with our 6,000 siblings. Um, uh. so it, it, and, and that's how I feel, you know, about them. And they ground me and they lift me up and, and they inspire me. And it, it was literally my kids that, that enabled me to, to kind of persevere and, and to fight back, to fight back with more science and more data. Um, and eventually the state did concede. Yeah, but it took a long time. And, you know, in contending with the backlash, you must also have received the gratitude, even though people were scared, but grateful that you spoke out. Because from the stories that you mentioned at the outset, parents really were worried about what was going on, not knowing what was going on. Yeah, and the, the parents were right. And it was something we say in pediatrics, like pediatrics 101, moms are always right. Like moms are right. Like if the mom says my kid's burning up, the kid probably has a fever. And if the mom's like, my kid's not acting right. The kid's probably not acting right. And, you know, I, there was definitely gratitude from the community that they finally kind mm -hmm. of could name what was wrong with the water, but they knew what was wrong with the water. Um, and I definitely didn't want that gratitude. I actually, you know, I actually, that was one of my biggest regrets is that I had drank the Kool-Aid for so long in the beginning and was telling my patients mm -hmm. that the water was okay. Um, obviously, that all changed when I heard the word lead. You know, to this day, I often have conversations and I start, you know, visits with my patients or, you know, when I'm interacting with community members, I start by apologizing. I'm like, I apologize. The medical community wasn't a better listener early on. Like, you know, I apologize. We didn't do something sooner when concerns were first there. So after the press conference, obviously, the criticism began and they used the terrible word that mm -hmm. tends to be used at times like this, that you were a hysterical woman. But there must have been others, too, who began to align themselves around you. And did it catalyze a movement of any kind? Did it then lead to greater pressures and um, more people coming in and saying, we've got to do something about this? Yes, absolutely. And one of the take-homes of my story, my story is absolutely not about one person. It is about a village of people. It is about a team that came together and, you know, to right this wrong and most importantly, to work in our recovery. And that team was such an unexpected team. And I think that's what I've really enjoyed going through this crisis is that before this, you know, 
I was really very siloed in my profession. Like, you know, as a pediatrician, I hung out with other pediatricians and I went to conferences with pediatricians. And and in some ways, I used <laughs> to think like we had a monopoly on caring for children. Like, oh, there can't be anybody else who cares about kids more than we do. And And the beauty of going through this experience is that the team that was developed was this ragtag team of everyday people, moms and pastors and journalists and water scientists and students and lawyers and all these different folks who were so powerful when we were able to work together. Um, So yes, so many folks rallied beside me and I beside them to shed light on this issue. And, you know, the media also played a tremendous role. I often say it was our science that spoke truth to power, but it was also this growing team um, and the media spotlight that, that made the state finally concede. And there's obviously a lesson in all of that about uh, what it does take. So this did go on for quite a while, at least it seemed to me watching from the outside and yeah. worrying about what was happening uh, in Flint. When did Flint actually begin to take action on this crisis? When did you begin to see that the corner was turned? Yeah, I, I think um, so. I went public with this research in um, September of 2015. And like I said, there was quite a bit of backlash. But in less than a month after that, we switched our water back to the Great Lakes. And we never imagined that that would happen. Um, so that happened in October of 2015. We then became a city level state of emergency in November. And then by January, President Obama declared a federal state of emergency. Um, so things did actually happen quite quickly after sharing that, going public with that research. But the interesting thing with kind of lead and really trauma in general is that, you know, it's long term work and, you know, the consequences, you know, will be borne out for a long time. Uh, the, the water didn't immediately go back, you know, to being safe water. So all of these things take time. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual-wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually 
in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. So you went on to write a New York Times bestseller, which is clearly a big deal, uh, about your experiences. What the Eyes Don't See. Wonderful title. Tell us about your growing up. You had mentioned that your parents were immigrants. What was it in your background, Mona, that made you the woman you are today? Oh, thank you for that question. So, you know, when I started to write a book, it was just going to be my firsthand account of being at the center of probably one of our most emblematic environmental and public health crises. And, And that was the book. And that's how I started writing the book. However, quite quickly, I realized I couldn't tell you the story of what I did in Flint and how I ended up in Flint without telling you who I was and where I came from. So the book is very much a weaving of who I am and my personal and my family history with the events of the water crisis. And my background is that of a a first-generation immigrant. I wasn't supposed to be in this country. My family and I immigrated when I was about four years old. We were leaving the kind of the oppression and the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein's regime in Iraq. And like most immigrants, we were leaving somewhere bad for somewhere better. We were coming for that American dream. Mm -hmm. And and that American dream was absolutely realized for me and my family. And that gave me this perspective growing up of being everyday grateful to be in this country because I had first cousins who were, you know, in air shelters and, you know, sanctions and going through so much. And that perspective also, you know, gave me a lens of seeing the world in a way where people in power could take advantage of vulnerable populations. And and my parents never shielded me from those kinds of injustices. Um, You know, I clearly recall when I was about 10 or 11 years old, and my parents shared with me the what happened in in Halepta, Iraq, uh, in northern Iraq, in a Kurdish village, where Saddam Hussein poisoned an entire village within a chemical weapons Mm. attack. 5,000 people died that day. And to this day, I can I still see the image of a baby on the ground lying there with her father, you know, victims of this attack. And I don't know, maybe my parents shouldn't have shown me those pictures, but they definitely wanted to raise me in a way, knowing what the world was like. And and more importantly, knowing that I had a role to play, that no matter where I was or what I was doing, that I had a role in fighting for justice and especially for fighting for vulnerable populations. And it's that kind of background, that immigrant perspective that, you know, very much drove me into this service-driven profession of medicine, um, to go into pediatrics and to be in a place like Flint. And when I was kind of writing this book, I never would have thought that we would be at a point in this country where we would also be questioning the role of of immigrants. Um, you know, exactly. I, yeah, when, when I came here, Lady Liberty's arms were open wider, and I was welcomed, and my diversity was by and large celebrated, and that made me grow up really kind of confident and competent, and also committed to service. And I, you can't say that today because there's little brown girls that look just like me, and they want to come here for those same reasons, and they can't come here anymore. Part of my story is also how we view immigrants and kind of the immigrant contribution to this nation. 
Well, we have to get back to those values, it seems to me, because we are an immigrant nation, and frankly, it's yeah. our strength uh, and yeah. the envy of the world in many, many ways. Yeah. So you are indeed a leader, clearly, and a woman in science. We bemoan the fact that we have too few women in the STEM professions. Uh, we have too few girls going into learnings in the sciences. Why is it important and how do we get there? It is so important. And, you know, something that this experience has taught me is I'm in different rooms now and I'm, I have a, a seat at different tables. And at the beginning of this crisis, when I was exposed, I was often the only woman and the only brown person in these rooms. And my jaw would drop and I would look around and I would say to myself, you know, do you think this is maybe part of the problem, like, or how we got into this mess? Because there's not more diversity at the table. Where are the women? Where are the brown people? When you have more folks at the table who can represent different voices, you ask different questions and you come up with different solutions in every field, not just in science, but in policymaking and in public health and journal, you name it, we need more women there because it lends a different perspective. Um, and mm -hmm. most importantly, we are able to come up with different solutions and maybe prevent those problems. Like look right now at the pandemic, look at the countries that have been run by women and how much better they have done because of their leadership. They're really preventative, proactive, public health driven leadership, science driven. Empathetic. Empathy. And telling their fellow citizens the truth. Absolutely. About what is going on. Absolutely. Last year, I understand you were awarded uh, the 2020 Freeze Prize for Improving Health. And you donated $60,000 in the prize money to your pediatric public health initiative. Can you tell us about that initiative? Oh, I would love to. So, you know, from the moment of working to uncover this crisis, my work to this day has been in recovery is it has been in making sure that the kids of Flint have the brightest future possible in mitigating the impact of this crisis and, and really shining a spotlight on the Flints that are everywhere. Um, so I currently direct this pediatric public health initiative at the partnership between the university and the children's hospital to improve outcomes for Flint children. I received this prize, which is this amazingly a humbling and honoring prize from the CDC Foundation. It's like their Nobel Prize for Health. Um, and the award for that prize went to this initiative and it specifically went to fund a, a scholar program um, to mm. increase the pipeline of more physicians uh, that embrace public health that will work to identify and prevent the next public health disaster. And we have recently named the scholar program after one of my um, female heroes, a, a woman physician scientist uh, named Alice Hamilton, who was a century ago was our nation's lead expert. She's known as the mother of the field of occupational medicine. She was the very first woman professor at Harvard University. She battled a lifetime of, of sexism, um, but she was always fighting for the most vulnerable populations. And she went up against really, really powerful forces. So that prize money has gone to help support the Alice Hamilton Scholars, um, named after this amazing, amazing woman, um, to ensure that we have the next generation of scientists, activists uh, out there. That's terrific and truly important. It would be interesting to know what still needs to be done in Flint 
Uh, you had mentioned the dealing with the consequences of the lead poisoning. What are some of the things that still need to be contended with? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So the water crisis was really kind of on top of decades of crisis in the city, which is one of the reasons I came to Flint to practice as a pediatrician, not just to like treat ear infections, but to address these kind of upstream in, injustices and, and inequalities. And, and then the the water crisis happened. And we have holistically kind of been leaning on the science of of child development and trauma, really kind of looking at this crisis as one added toxicity atop of so many toxicities that were really threatening the the life course of our children. Um, and when you kind of lean on that science, you, you begin to understand how important the kind of the period of early childhood is and how important it is to really build resilient communities to support children. So the work that we are doing in Flint is, is long-term um, and really um, focuses on that period of early childhood, but with things like early literacy support and, you know, high quality childcare and home visiting programs and breastfeeding support services, mm -hmm. uh, mental health care, trauma-informed care, expanded healthcare access, nutrition supports. So these are all, they sound kind of innovative and, and awesome, but really they're basic common sense things that our kids in Flint didn't have and kids in so many communities don't have access to. These are just the basic fundamental ingredients of, of how to be healthy and successful. So these are the kinds of things that we're working on in Flint. We also have something called the Flint Registry, which is this longitudinal effort to see how folks are doing and to get them connected to these services. You know, the terrible thing with lead and, and also with trauma is that, you know, the exposure may have happened several years ago, but the manifestations or the consequences of those exposures sometimes don't present for, for decades later. Do you have a sense of greater hope among mm. the people in Flint after going I, through yeah. what they've gone through? I do. Um, and that's what made me fall in love with the city like 20 plus years ago when I was in, in medical school. Uh, Flint is a city of, of grit, of pride, of loyalty, a city that's always kind of rolling up its sleeves uh. and looking forward. And that's what I, I love about the city. We have this registry, like I mentioned, and we ask the community, um, all of our work is done in partnership with community. We ask, like, what do you think the logo or, you know, of this registry should be? And the, a community member said it, it should be the Sankofa bird. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Sankofa bird, but it's a, it's an, it's a mythical bird from Africa that's flying forward and looking back and it has an egg in its mouth. And it's <laughs> symbolic of, of our work. It's all about kind of pushing ahead and being forward driven, yet not forgetting the past and the injustices of the past and the need to reckon with those injustices and that history that's that we often close our eyes to. And then the egg in the mouth is is about eating our young. No, just kidding. It's about the kids and it's about prioritizing our children. Um, so I think that's really kind of symbolic of the city and all of our work. We are absolutely pushing forward, but never forgetting the past and prioritizing our young and making sure that what we do in Flint, um, once again, shines a spotlight all over this nation because there are Flints everywhere. I'm so happy to hear that because I, I must say the months of the stories coming out of Flint were just, it was so discouraging and so disheartening yeah. uh, to hear them. So this is wonderful, uh, wonderful news. You had mentioned the pandemic and there's something that COVID-19 and the Flint water crisis certainly have in common, and that is that they both disproportionately affected low-income people of color. 
And I wonder during the pandemic, you've been very vocal about health and racial equity. How does that connect you to your work on the Flint crisis? Yeah, thank you for that question. You know, there have been so many parallels between the water crisis and the pandemic. And there's been some recent readers of my book, and they've approached me, they're like, did you know that we were going to have a pandemic when you wrote this book? I'm <laughs> like, no, I, I didn't know. But they're like, but the same lessons. And, and, and yeah, so many, so many resonating lessons. And it's not just about the community that was disproportionately impacted. But I think some of the even bigger kind of resonating themes are um, are that of leadership. So in Flint, we had a failure of good governance that valued public health. We, we mm-hmm. also saw that at the national level. In Flint, we had a complete disrespect of science, uh, you know, of mm-hmm. scientists, of experts. You know, we also had that, had that especially in the beginning with the pandemic. Um, in Flint, we learned that, you know, we can't uh, chronically disinvest in public health infrastructure, drinking water deliveries, public health infrastructure, but sort of surveillance systems and health departments. And then we've also seen that obviously at, at the national level of the pandemic, we can't, there's no amount of ventilators or ICUs or medications that that can, you know, f- fix the long-term disinvestment and what keeps people healthy. And then lastly, as you mentioned, you know, Flint never would have happened in a richer or wider community. Um, this was mm-hmm. a, a complete example of environmental injustice, environmental racism, health injustice. Um, and that's been called out in many kind of investigations and, and reports. And and this pandemic also is not this kind of great equalizer that it was first touted to be. It continues to be, uh, you know, vulnerable communities, people of color and, and Flint as well that have been hit more than others. Um, so mm-hmm. I, this actually makes me hopeful and excited because for so long we have been sharing the lessons of Flint, that we need leaders who value public health, that science needs to be at the table, that we have to invest in what keeps people healthy and not continue to fund a sickness system, and that we have to eliminate inequities. In Flint, we took a crisis and we turned it into an opportunity to do better. And I am hopeful that as we are now in this generation defining moment of crisis, that we will turn it into an opportunity to reimagine and to rebuild with good leadership, with science, with once again, investing in public health infrastructure, um, and actively addressing inequities. You know, that's so well said, and it is truly so important to learn these lessons. I know so often today in discussions I'm in uh, about the disproportionate impacts of COVID, for example, on women, and the alarming rise in violence against women, for example, we haven't learned from the Ebola crisis, you know, where the same thing happened and there was lack of preparation or diversion of resources. So we really do have to learn these lessons. And I'm so glad that uh, you connected lessons out of the Flint water crisis uh, with the pandemic crisis. And is what you said at the end, that very upbeat set of recommendations Is that what makes you optimistic today about public health? Are we going in the right direction, for example? I think so. Um, You know, at our state level and now with the national level, you know, we do have leadership that values public health. Science is back at the table. Um, Decisions are being driven by science. We are also seeing an investment in public health infrastructure. Um, Just this week, um, President Biden's infrastructure plan uh, called for the removal of all lead pipes in the country. This is because of Flint. 
Uh, we also are seeing things like the child tax credit to eliminate child poverty. So we're we're starting to get at the root causes of these health inequities. Um, we have a long way to go, um, but I am absolutely um, more optimistic. Well, on that note, it has been absolutely delightful and inspiring to speak with you today. Uh, I'm sure our listeners feel the same way. By any definition, it seems to me, you are a hero and we are grateful to you uh, for what you did and for the lessons that I think are lasting lessons that your story represents and should represent uh, for all of us. So thank you so much for what you've done and thank you for what you will continue to do, I'm sure. Thank you. I am um, I'm a huge fan of, of history, and uh, my book is littered with history, and I would not be here without standing on the shoulders of so many women who've paid the way for me. And I just hope that kind of my story resonates with, with younger girls and women, you know, knowing that, that they can do the exact same thing. That is what a hero sounds like. It was so inspiring to talk to Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha today. Here are three things I took away from that amazing conversation. First, Dr. Mona shows why it's critical to speak out forcefully whenever we see injustice. When her research showed that children in Flint were being exposed to lead in the city's drinking water, she didn't hesitate. She held a press conference and then persisted in her crusade despite fierce backlash. Second, Dr. Mona exemplifies the benefits of diversity. She describes herself as a brown immigrant woman and says, when you have more folks at the table who can represent different voices, you ask different questions and you come up with different solutions in every field. Finally, let's be inspired by the symbol she mentions, the mythical Sankofa bird from Africa. It flies forward and looks back. Our goal, says Dr. Mona, should be always push forward, but never forget the past. Tune in next Thursday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. 
This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.